A throwdown in the RGV. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com. He's at houstonchronicle.com. We are both in Austin, which is a rarity these days. But hey, here's what um, is also a little bit rare, uh, is a Saturday show. Are you awake? Are you caffeinated? Are you ready to talk about the debate from last night? No, absolutely. I'm, I'm going you know, straight caffeine through this whole show. Right. Right we'll into it. my veins. Thank you. Um, let's go through this. We're going to talk about a few things that are not uh, not specifically about the debate, but uh, most of it, from from what I gathered on social media and other places, Jeremy, people can't wait to hear our take on all this. So let me get into it. The debate in Edinburgh was, and here, here's the way I put it. You, you grade my paper, Jeremy. In my estimation, both men had decently solid performances. There were no giant breakout moments for anybody. There were some thematic things that happened throughout it that I think if a person watched the whole debate, they would come come away with maybe some different thoughts about the candidates. But one problem for Beto is that almost nobody watched that debate, right? I mean, I, can, I don't even know what the numbers were, but we'll we'll see that you know in the coming days what the specific ratings were. It was on you know television stations across the state, but it was on some stations in certain markets that are kind of secondary stations, and and more than that. We were honoring the time-honored tradition of having the debate on Friday night during the high school football season, right? So if nobody – look, if, if let me put it this way. If people watched it, I think it was a pretty good night for Beto, right, if they watched it. If they didn't, which is what most voters would have done, that they didn't watch it or certainly didn't watch it live, then I would think the dynamics of the overall race are not changed. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. There's some There are some really good uh, – you know, issue dives for both these candidates. And there's some really interesting stylistic things that I saw in this debate compared to how these guys have performed in the past. I can't wait to kind of get into all of this. You know, like it was kind of interesting watching these guys. Like you said, though, I am completely of the mindset that, look, there's no game changer in this. There's no major flub. There's no Rick yeah. Perry moment where mm -hmm. he's trying to remember his name type stuff. <laughs> right. You know, it's like this is, yeah. this is a clearly, you know, Two guys who prepared very well for this debate uh, yes. and were very different at the same time mm -hmm. from what I've witnessed, at least through their political careers and past debates. Yeah, and that's a really great point. I thought as I was watching it that I have never seen these two men, Beto O'Rourke and Greg Abbott, as prepared as they were last night to say words out loud, right? They were both ready with their arguments and there were very few flubs, like you say, and they were ready to talk about all of the issues that they expected to be debated. And it was, you know, it was all the stuff that you would expect, right? I didn't see it. There were no issues brought up by the moderators that I thought, wow, why are they even bringing that up, right? That, because that does happen sometimes where there'll be a question and you, and you say, what is that even about? Yeah, it was interesting. On uh, Monday, I was in San Antonio, because why not? Uh, and I was talking to uh, Beto O'Rourke after an event at UTSA. And I said, look, you know, I don't mean to be too mean to you, but <laughs> man, debates just haven't been your yeah. thing. And he said, and he's like, I'm with you. I get it. <laughs> you know, but, you know, and he kind of gave me this impression that like he knows his faults. He's been kind of paying attention to it. And he was ready for this debate in a different way. And I think that came through a little bit. And we'll get into it, of course. Of course. Let's get into the issue. Issues. First, immigration. And I'm going to take these in the order that they uh, happened during the debate, chronological order. Um, KXAN news anchor Sally Hernandez, one of the moderators, was asking Governor Abbott about all of the tax dollars he's been spending for border security in what has been called Operation Lone Star. And she, look, she said this, hey, how much money should we really be spending on this deal? Should more money be allocated towards Operation Lone Star? And if so, Governor, 
how much? Well, candidly, we shouldn't have to seconds. allocate any money for it because this is all because of Joe Biden's failure to do the president's job to secure the border. We're only having to do that because of Joe Biden's failure and because it would be the same pathway uh, that Beto would take us down. Speaking of which, he talked about this uh, guest worker program. He could have done that had he won the race for the Senate or won the race for president. That's not a job for governor. The job of governor is to have to deal with the chaos caused by the Biden administration and its open border policies that Beto would replicate. Jeremy, I have three fingers up because I was counting the number of times within 30 seconds Greg Abbott could say the name Joe Biden or Biden administration. If you had a drinking game going and one of the squares was Biden, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know if you'd have lasted the night. Um, Beto you know, weighed in on this as well and was asked the same question. Do we need to be spending a bunch of money on Operation Lone Star? Should more money be allocated towards Operation Lone Star? No, it's clearly failed. Um, the numbers are in. We're seeing not fewer, but more engagements at our border. When the governor spent $4 billion of our tax dollars on what has turned out to be political theater for his political career, he promised us that it would deter people from coming to this country. We've only seen more people come. Now they get a bus ride to Chicago or Washington, D.C. or New York. We don't need any more stunts. We need solutions. Jeremy, your thoughts on this exchange? Well, I, I, look, if... if you know, Greg Abbott was praying for, you know, immigration to be front and center at the beginning of this debate. It came to him, right? Like it was clearly a very good prayer. He got 25% of the debate was dedicated to the border. You know, 15 minutes of this thing was all about border immigration, Operation Lone Star. Right. And I could imagine somewhere Dave Carney, his senior advisor, was doing a fist bump, you know, like with people. Yeah, we got this, you know. Oh, he was so dancing. Literally Not just a his, fist bump. He was dancing. Yeah, literally his first sentence in the debate is, you know, turning the race into a referendum on Joe Biden on the border. That is exactly what every Republican poll says they need to happen. And it was just rolled out at them. And they could basically own this debate for 15 minutes because as much as, you know, Beto wants to kind of nuance about, you know, guest worker programs and things like that, you know, a lot of Texans, you know, the majority of, you know, see a problem at the border and think that we need to be more aggressive there. And Abbott got to, to sound like Mr. Aggressor mm -hmm. on the border. Victory for him, I think, yeah. in this entire exchange. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, the whole tough on border security thing, it has echoes of just, you know, the the classic uh, Texas hang them high in the Texas sky, tough on crime yep. message, right? Which also has sort of racial Perfect. undertones to it, right? I mean, it, it it's the way in which this gets conveyed now. It's people who are not like you are coming here and we got to crack down on that. Um, and to the Republicans' uh, advantage uh, in every election cycle for the last at least 15 to 20 years, because you go back um, to when Governor Perry was running, it, it was he who put forward the message originally. 2006, those TV ads that said that, you know, if Washington won't secure this border, then Texas will. And Democrats always have a more nuanced message on it. And it's hard for it to resonate. It just doesn't stick on a bumper sticker. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, like, you know, you know, I would say for 100 years, the issue of immigration has always been one where somebody can make the case like, you know, these people are bad. We need to do more about it. And it really works in politics, you know, again, for that simple answer to a complex problem. The the complex solution to the thing is complex, right? You know, right. it's like, but, you know, Beto can't get that out in, okay, you know, Mr. O'Rourke, you got 15 seconds to mm -hmm. respond. It's like, how do you do that in 15 seconds. How do you right. break that down? I think that just puts, you know, 
immediately O'Rourke on the defensive, although he was able to like you know, shut down this whole idea. Look, I'm not for open borders. Mm-hmm. Nobody's for open borders. He kind of came back to that a couple of times. The moderators were, I think, effective in, uh, you know, enforcing the time rules. And often I get frustrated with this because it doesn't uh, come across as a real conversation. That's not the moderator's fault. This, this is what the campaigns agreed to. Oh, you'll get a minute. You'll get 30 seconds. You'll get 15 seconds. And to your point, and this is why I bring up the bumper sticker, if you want me to explain immigration, abortion, property taxes, and whatever else in 15 seconds, it's probably not going to come across in a way that, you know, where you could explain it, uh, you know, to, to fully, uh, you know, give people your ideas about about that topic. Um, guns. This topic is also nuanced, right? And of course, Beto's been all over the map and he had, to, he was, you know, put on the spot about where he really is when it comes to guns. Let's start with Governor Abbott on this topic, though. KSAT TV anchor Steve Spreester, my friend down in San Antonio, wanted to know about Abbott's priorities for the regular session coming up in a few months. He wanted to know if Abbott would put it front and center after what happened in Uvalde. There's a regular session coming up in January. Will you make school safety an emergency item for lawmakers when they meet? You have 15 seconds. Absolutely. Just like I did uh, in past sessions. This is going to be an emergency item. Over the summer, I requested special legislative committees to begin working already so that they will have ready when we begin the session. To address you, but emergency. the broader based issue across the entire state of Texas. If it's an emergency call, it's a special session now. What, why uh, wait till the next year? You could hear the uh, bell dinging, uh, indicating that the time was up. And then you could hear Beto say, well, how, why didn't you do anything about it this year? Why, why are you waiting until next year? Uh, that was news to me. It sounded like news that Abbott was saying it would be an emergency item. I hadn't heard him say that. Um, when people say that something should be an emergency item for the state of Texas during a legislative session, I should explain that. Um, the word emergency. It's not that anybody's trying to be misleading, but what it actually means is that it's a priority set by the governor and that the governor's actually exercising his power. Under the Texas Constitution, the legislature can't address anything in the first couple of months of the session unless the governor does that. If he says, hey, you can talk about school safety or, hey, you can talk about uh, you know, gun uh, regulations or we're going to get into abortion uh, as an emergency item, um, if he designates it as an emergency item, they have put it this way, they have more time during the legislative session to address that thing, right? And so Abbott is saying that he's going to do that. Beto is saying, hey, listen, if it's, and he's pegging off the word emergency, he's saying, hey, if it is an emergency, why haven't you done anything about it now? Why haven't you gone forward and put something in place uh, such that when we started this school year, we would have some different laws in effect, or they would be, at least those laws would be on their way to being in effect. But as you have pointed out, Jeremy, because of the timeline as it is now laid out with Abbott saying that, hey, next session we'll get to it in January, that means for the entire school year, nothing will be different when it comes to the law in Texas following what happened in Uvalde. Yeah, and, and and to me, it's it's very important to kind of remember Abbott is talking about school safety there and not guns. You know, it's like he's made it clear throughout this debate, even at different points, where he just doesn't think there's room to do certain things on guns. And so this is clearly, you know, about doors, about you know, school resource officers, and all kinds of other stuff that aren't what the things that the families from Uvalde who lost 19 children and mm-hmm. two teachers. This is not what they're asking for. You know, they're asking for you know changes in gun laws. You know, to you know address 
18-year-olds who get these weapons that killed their children. On the topic of guns, Beto said he would follow the lead of those families from Uvalde. That's who I'm doing this for. In fact, uh, many of them drove more than five hours, 280 miles to be here today, even though they're not allowed in this theater because of the governor's conditions, because they want to hold him accountable because it's been 18 weeks since their kids have been killed and not a thing has changed in this state to make it any less likely that any other child will meet the same fate. All we need is action. And the only person standing in our way is the governor of the state of Texas. In Florida, after the Parkland shootings, it was 23 days for that Republican governor to raise the age. And in those states where the age has been raised, mass shootings are down 80%. Now, guns should be sort of like immigration is a good issue for Abbott. Guns should be a good issue for Beto, but there is nuance to this too, right? Beto has been, as I said, all over the map. He had said when he ran for president that, hell yes, we'll take your AR-15, your AK-47. It seems that Abbott's campaign has backed off attacking him about that comment, but the journalists who were there and I think they're right to do it, asked him about that, right? They said, hey, are you for taking people's guns? Are you not for that? Where are you now? And Jeremy, you heard his answer. What he said What he said was, and you could tell this was rehearsed, that they really practiced this one, that, that Beto said that what he would do as governor is focus on the accomplishable. That's the word I'm using. What he was saying is I'm going to focus on what's pragmatic. Um, if I'm elected governor, then I'll be working in all likelihood with a Republican legislature. And so there are certain things I would have to focus on. And the things that he talked about were the things that you might remember the, uh, the Texas Senate Democratic Caucus had put in a letter to Governor Abbott when they called for a special session. And it was what I would describe as bare minimum things. They're talking about red flag laws. They're talking about um, raising the age to 21 for some of these firearms purchases, uh, for regulating the uh, maximum capacity of magazines for certain weapons and things like that. And no one is right now willing to say anything about an all-out gun confiscation program. That's just not practically where we're at at as a state. Yeah, it's interesting. And and, uh, listening to Beto walk that line on that whole discussion, look, he's still of the mindset that these weapons shouldn't be on the streets. You know, he still believes that. So he's having to kind of walk this line, go, no, look, I don't want basically I don't want to talk about that right now because I want to focus on the accomplishable. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but he doesn't want to like alienate himself with all these people in like, you know, the mom's demand action world that have been you know, kind of an energy source for him on this like whole, hell yeah, we're going to take your AR-15s. You know, it's like, you know, that's where all that came from. So he mm-hmm. can't really sell that part of his, you know, political career out, right. you know, just to kind of win this election. So you can see him kind of being careful about how he kind of moves this on. But it's interesting, as mu- as difficult as this it can be for him, I think he'd take this bargain because he's able to talk about the Uvalde families. Yeah. And, you know, you could see that brings a different kind of mojo to his campaign and to mm-hmm. his energy than anything I've seen him kind of talk about. He kind of gets into this. And I think it's like even if you're a Republican, you can tell this guy is super empathetic to what happened there and has been there on the ground with these families, has a different relationship with these families than Greg Abbott does. And like, you know, he on stage, he actually had stuff from the Uvalde families with him when he was doing mm-hmm. the debate. It's like, that's how kind of important it is for his mojo. So when this issue came up, just like I was saying, like Abbott's prayer, you know, got answered on, you know, 25 you know, or 15 minutes of talking about the border. This is, you know, Beto's prayer, like to be mm-hmm. able to talk about Uvalde as much as possible and this mojo that he gets from them. I think it just kind of put him in the right mindset for really the rest of the debate. Abortion 
is the next topic they got to. And you remember um, a few weeks ago, Governor Abbott had said, and this was following his comments last year, where he said, you know, as far as these exceptions for rape and incest, there are no exceptions for that now under the current Texas legal scheme um, for the abortion ban. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Abbott said, look, rape victims can just take the plan B pill. Well, you knew that would come up. Is plan B the alternative when it comes to somebody who is pregnant from rape or incest? Well, it depends on what you mean by alternative. An alternative, obviously, uh, is uh, to do what we can to assist and aid uh, the victim. Uh, and that is to help get them medical assistance that they need uh, and the care that they need, but also uh, to know what their options are. They're going to uh, to know that uh, the, the state, uh, through al our alternatives to abortion program, provides living assistance, baby supplies, all kinds of things that can help them. Also, we've increased funding for prenatal okay. and postpartum care. Thank you. Now, Beto said Abbott's answers so far, including that one, have been completely inadequate. But I've got to respond to this, this, this silliness on Plan B, this comment he made about eliminating rape in the state of Texas. This is an attack on women. More women have been raped in the state of Texas than any other state. There are 3,000 untested rape kits at DPS headquarters, meaning that our ability, our ability to bring rapists to justice has declined by half. Do you think, Jeremy, that when Abbott was talking about you know, getting baby supplies to rape victims, that that was maybe the closest thing that unfolded in the hour uh, that, you know, folks might point to as sort of a sort of a gaffe, the kind of thing that would infuriate certain people, because that's the kind of reaction I saw online last night where there were a lot of people saying that this isn't yet another tone deaf thing that Abbott is saying when it comes to uh, those women who, uh, you know, have, have been the victims of this crime. Number one, we're going to get rid of all the criminals. That, that was the first thing. Then the second thing is, well, they could just take this pill. And now the third thing is, if the pill doesn't work, well, we're going to make sure that they have, you know, family care, postpartum care, uh, and baby supplies if they need them. Yeah, I have no doubt that Greg Abbott has rehearsed this kind of answer for, you know, ever since he signed, you know, basically the legislation banning abortions in Texas, right? But yet somehow, like he just still like has hard time expressing whatever the thought they practice and what's coming out of his mouth just isn't working. You know, it's like it just sounds weird. You know, it's just like it sounds like he's uncomfortable talking about all of it. And it's again, this is a guy who's been in politics right. for 26 years mm -hmm. and he's still having a hard time. Like, well, uh, well, baby supplies, well, we'll ban rape. Uh, you know, you can take plan B. Uh, it's like, wait, wait, is that what you rehearsed? I'm sure his people are saying, yeah. we didn't rehearse anything about, you know, sending baby supplies to rape victims. It's like, that's not what our plan was. <laughs> You're supposed yeah. to say this. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like someone who has no experience with one of those awful situations and, and look, you know, most most men would not have had any experience with that unless they had, you know, some a woman very close to them who went through it. Um, but worse than that, in the estimation of a lot of people, has also not even tried to understand it. Right? Has not even like visited, you know, visited with victims in these situations. And listen, and in these situations, Jeremy, I have always found it the most helpful as a man to listen to what women are saying, so that what what comes out of your mouth has to do with that rather than your sort of your ideas about eliminating rape or whatever else that's not practical at all, 
That is just is, is not going to happen. But you say it because you think it somehow is going to reassure people. Um, that's a yeah, probably that's probably a really good point. It's mm-hmm. like it seems like he should have a focus group in his campaign of just some women. Yeah. You know, like get all the men out of the room and just like, you know, hey, if I say something about sending baby supplies to an incest right. well, victim who's 16, what do you what think? Would y'all, that what would y'all play think well about that? Or is that uh-huh. bad? Right. <laughs> yeah, know, give just us- so he can hear that. <laughs> no, yeah. you probably want to go away from that. Yeah. Give me the thumbs up or thumbs down on that one. Um, crime and defunding police. This is one of the issues that I think, Jeremy, the playing field has been a little more equalized for Republicans and Democrats. And let me explain what I mean. In 2020. This was a huge liability for Democrats, right? I mean, the Republicans came on strong with this attack that Democrats all over the place, including those that are running for the legislature, those who are running for U.S. Senate and Congress and everything, that all these Democrats want to defund the police. You remember the kind of uh, ads we saw during that campaign where you would see a television ad and it's, you know, say a woman in the Dallas area is calling the police. And, you know, you get the hello, 911, and the person's trying to report that there's an intruder in their house. But the police will say, the 911 operator will say, I'm sorry, you know, Beto O'Rourke or whatever Democrat defunded us. And so we can't actually send anybody. Maybe we'll get somebody over there next week and good luck. And they hang up on the person. That was the, that was the kind of ad that was actually pretty effective, uh, especially in suburban Texas, right? This is a big appeal to you know, the soccer moms, people who, you know, folks who really prioritize the safety of their families, which is everybody, but specifically mothers. This was a very, very effective uh, message. Uh, for that target audience. Well, now, I don't know, maybe it's sort of, uh, maybe it's starting to sink in with people that Democrats don't really want to do that. I mean, I see all over the country, for example, in the Pennsylvania Senate race, John Fetterman uh, is the Democrat running against Doc Oz. That's a fun race to kind of watch from afar. You know, my daughter lives in Philadelphia and she sends me stuff about the race. She's very interested in this stuff. I couldn't be more proud of her. Uh, her, her newfound interest in politics. It's a very fun race to have be one of her first ones to pay attention to. And in that race, John Fetterman, who is the former mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania. You heard that right. He's the former mayor of <laughs> yes, Braddock, <laughs> which is a – and this is where I first was – this is where I was first even aware of this guy. There were some national stories about this. Uh, they called him – I don't know. They called him the – uh, a very unconventional. I'm trying to remember what they said, but it was something about him being very unconventional. This is this guy who, you know, has a goatee and he's, he looks like a, a, a like a, a like a WWE wrestler or something. He's got all these tattoos on his arms and uh, he's got his head shaved, bald. It looks like it's kind of like a like a rock star sort of guy. Um, and it, the reason he ran for mayor of Braddock is because let me tell you something. My namesake town in Pennsylvania is kind of a slum, or at least it was. They've done a lot of work on it, but it was kind of a, it was a really rough place. It's one of the small old steel towns around Pittsburgh, right? Where they have a lot of, uh, you know, just rampant crime. And they would tell you in those places, no businesses are moving in. That's where it's the old rust belt. The, you know, the businesses are moving out and people don't want to live there. And the whole reason that the guy ran is because of public safety, right? He's a, he was a teacher and he ran, and this is in his uh, ads now, he says he ran for mayor of Braddock because he wanted to do something about crime. The public safety is why he ran. And so a lot of the messages that come from the Democratic campaign in that state right now uh, sound like this. So I ran for office to fund the police. We, he said in his ads, we say we did everything that we could to fund our police when I was the mayor of this small town. And I've seen other Democrats. I mean, that's just one example. I see other Democrats around the country now making a forceful argument. And this was really led by President Biden. Remember, 
He gave a speech where he said, no, we don't want to defund the police. Fund the police. Right. He's he's basically leading the way for the party on that. Y'all have got to stop letting Republicans accuse you of this, basically. Right. So, so he's delivering this message. Fund the police. So here's another reason I think it's so, – so that's one thing. That's, here's another reason I think that it's sort of an e- more equal uh, uh, sort of battlefield on this. Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick are making the argument in their television ads that – and this sounds very – it's an interesting argument for an incumbent to make. They're saying crime is way up in Texas. So you should reelect us to deal with it. Now, if you've been in office for going on eight years and your ad starts by saying crime is way up around here, people like Gromer Jeffers Jr. from the Dallas Morning News are going to ask you why crime is up on your watch. You've been governor for seven years. Crime is up. Do you bear any responsibility for that? So let me again explain what happened in Austin. After they, they defunded the police, the year after that, they had the highest number of murders ever. In Harris County, where they have this easy bail policy, uh, in the past couple of years, there have been hundreds of people killed by people let Thank out you. on bail who had been previously arrested oh, for murder. Right. There's that time bell again. Of course, we're explaining crime policy and public safety, and we're trying to do it in 30 seconds. We can't talk over each other either like humans would do, Jeremy. Yeah. Um, that, that's not allowed. In a debate, um, in a real exchange of ideas, um, that's my that's my rant about that. Um, interesting, Abbott is once again, and he does this on property taxes. He does this on a whole host of issues, including crime. He's pointing the finger at local officials, whether it's district attorneys, county judges, mayors, whoever. Now, I'm old enough to remember uh, a time in Texas when uh, the mayors and DAs and uh, you know people who serve at the city and county level would have been working in concert with state leadership to try to address issues like this. But during Abbott's time in office, that has not been the case. You remember in 2015, Abbott gave a speech at the Texas Public Policy Foundation here in Austin, where he laid out the idea that local jurisdictions ought to pr- probably have no authority to do almost anything. And he has been on this warpath for the entire time he's been in office. You know that, uh, and I mentioned this often, but it, it sort of uh, it makes the point. Not only does Abbott think that, you know, cities and counties shouldn't be able to, uh, you know, regulate um, almost anything. One of the things that he said that they shouldn't be able to do is even have tree pruning ordinances for neighborhoods, right? He wants to, he wants to micromanage cities and counties to that level. So at some point, if you are consolidating power at the state level and taking power away from the local officials, because look, this is what I'll hear from people uh, on the right, my friends who are conservative, conservative Republicans, they'll say, look, cities and counties in Texas, and they're technically they're correct. Cities and counties are political subdivisions of the state of Texas, right? They, they exist because they are in this state and they're actually part of the state. Um, but I would argue that there is a reason you have political subdivisions in a state of almost 30 million people across two time zones because you can't micromanage it all out of Austin. Um, how long can the governor and the lieutenant governor and others, Jeremy, how long can they go on blaming local officials for all the problems in the state and get away with that in elections. I would be willing to bet that at least one more time, I'll bet you it'll work one more time this time around in November, because that is the argument, right? It's not, you know, even though crime's up on my watch, it isn't my fault. It's the Democrats who are in charge at the local level. Yeah. It goes to what you were saying earlier. It's like the, uh, you know, you know, safety is like number one, for anybody, despite your political persuasion, right? You know, it's the one thing the government absolutely is there for. Everybody agrees for. Make sure we're safe, 
but not to the point where there's so much of you that you start harassing us. <laughs> you know, somewhere that line kind of shifts at some point. But you see, like with Abbott, it's like you can see where that problem could eventually be, right? You know, it's like, so here he's asking, like, you know, if you're listening to that and like, you know, you're seeing crime spike in all kinds of, you know, cities in Texas and you're starting to get a little bit worried about it. And he's talking about Austin, Houston, you know, great. But you're not talking about like my city, you know, where I might like what, who my mayor is, you mm-hmm. know, the mayors got reelected, you know, think of like, you know, you know, San Antonio and mm-hmm. Dallas and Fort Worth. It's like, yeah, crime might be up, but, but why, why are you talking about Austin? At some point, don't you have to like, I, I'm surprised what he didn't do in that was like, oh, look, we're getting on top of this. And this is what we've been doing to send more resources to every, you know, police department. Like, like he had a like it's the carpet was rolled out for him to say how he's going to get much more aggressive, you know, to bring down crime. Instead, right. it was like, look what Lena Hidalgo is doing in Houston. Look what, right. you know, Mayor Adler's doing in Austin. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, instead of pointing fingers, it's like take command of it. And like, you know, take that ownership because I think people on the right and left and particularly in the middle, you know, they like that. They Mm -hmm. like when elected leaders say, look, this is what I'm going to do to fix it, you know, rather than, well, it's their fault. This is another. Yeah, this is another reason. This is one of the uh, one more reason that I think that the and maybe I'm I'm not sure I agree with this assessment, but I think that uh, that Abbott's campaign, Patrick's campaign must believe that this is only a turnout election and not a persuasion one. And I yeah. think that, that I think that is, uh, and here's what I mean by that. When you, when you look at the way to win campaigns, if you know that it's going to be a lower turnout election and you are campaigning in a place like Texas statewide and you know, what I say all the time is true, which is that there's just more Republican voters than Democratic ones, then you don't really have to worry about changing anybody's mind. Just get your people out. And so if they're going to talk for 15 minutes about immigration, which really fires up the base of the Republican Party and the support for border security, of course, extends a little bit beyond the Republican Party, at least the kind of stances that they're taking now, you would get a little bit more mainstream support for that. When it comes to arguments on something as fundamental as crime in your neighborhood. And your answer, instead of something constructive, is just to say, well, it's the Democrats at the local level who are messing that all up. That makes me think that they're not trying to change anybody's mind about anything, Jeremy. And instead, they're just trying to say Republicans have got to show up and really give it to those Democrats. Well, and and they have good reason to think that, right? For for 30 years, midterm elections in Texas have only been about turnout. It's like because the turnout is low and it'll be more Republicans coming to vote. It's like they, you know, you, it's, it's just been like clockwork, except for 2018 when it was like, oh, wait, this wasn't just the base thing. We lost 12 members of the Texas House. We mm-hmm. lost members of Congress. Everybody had a close race. You know, Dan Patrick and, you know, Greg Abbott lost Houston and Harris County by the biggest margin ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that should concern them because they kind of started from there. <laughs> you know, that's where like their careers really kind of took off and they got spanked there. It's like, is that going to happen again? I think they're thinking it might, you know, again, like what from listening to them, it's almost like they don't think that's going to happen again. Um, but and, and I'm sitting there going like, I don't know what's different from 2018. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I don't know how to judge what this turnout's going to look like. To yeah. me, we're going in this kind of blind because mm-hmm. the last one said everybody and their dog wants to vote. Right. And you're saying, well, we're going to go back to 
almost nobody and their dog wanting to vote. <laughs> right. When so, it may be. I mean, you know, you never – and I always try to pull back and, and it's a good point. Like who knows exactly what's going to happen. I, I get the sense that the campaigns, especially those with so much funding and so much money, just a mountain of money, that they might have a better idea than you and I as far as their research or what they're seeing as far as voter enthusiasm. But I do think that you have to look back. You pull back and you go, OK, let me look at the whole board here and let me look at the fact that one election doesn't make a trend, right? That, sure. that 2018 – is a midterm that was you could say, hey, this is the this is where, this is where we're headed, because you could say, okay, in 2016 turnout was giant, in 2018 huge again, 2020 huge again, but this is the first of those that's another midterm, right? So you could say, okay, do we go back to what we always see in Texas, where almost nobody shows up during the midterm, or? Is there some effect that's happening across the state based on what we talked about on a previous show where, hey, is this Biden's midterm or is it also kind of Trump's midterm too? And are people still sort of fired up on both sides and willing to really get out there and make their voice heard in a way that they normally wouldn't be in Texas? I mean, and you've reported on, you know, the voter registrations going through the roof, continuing to go through the roof. That makes me, that is one of the pieces of information that makes me think, okay, maybe this could be more like 2018. I also see the issue sets being different and and, and, you know, I mean, we wouldn't have been talking in 18. We weren't really talking about abortion in the same way we're talking now. We weren't talking about gun violence in the same way that we're talking now. There wasn't PTSD from an electric grid in Texas that failed during a winter storm. We have so many things that have happened in the meantime to make me think that if it's not as um, if it's not as intense as 2018, that it still sort of could be in that neighborhood. You know how everybody's, you know, you hear particularly on the right, but don't California, my Texas. To me, this has become uh, almost a watching us Floridize our electorate. You know, and that's Florida because we're adding. It's like again, I, I know I say this a lot on this show and on in print and everything, but we've added almost two million people since the last midterm. That is. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's like since Governor Abbott won his election in 2014, we've added over four and a half million extra voters. It's like, where do they go? What do they act like? That's like the entire state of Wisconsin has moved here since Greg Abbott first got elected and have never voted for Greg Abbott, maybe, unless they showed up that last midterm. And so, and, and even that was like, you know, that wasn't as much of a race. All in due respect to Lupe Valdez, like it was just wasn't a race that anybody went to go vote on. This mm -hmm. time, this is the only thing for people to come vote on. There's four and a half million people who have never done this, <laughs> just coming out for a governor's race. I think that's what throws this thing off. That's why it's so hard to predict what's going to happen next, because we're getting millions of people who are changing the playing field, even just a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. which then causes somebody to lose that nobody thought was going to lose. And I think that's the Floridizing of Texas politics right now. People are losing in ways that I didn't expect in some races. You know, 2018, those people who lost Texas House races, you know, we thought mm -hmm. like maybe eight were vulnerable. I didn't see right. 12, you know. No, so I, didn't I think see, that's I didn't kind see, of the although, although when uh, when we're done with the show, I will send you my analysis before that election, which nailed it at a dozen. Okay. So now, but, but, but I was factoring into that. I will say I was factoring into that, that some Democrats would win for free. Right. And I didn't know where they were, but, but I was, I was thinking, you know, we might get to nine or 10 and I think maybe two or three more are just going to be surprises. Right. Because who knew that, uh, for example, in Denton County, you would have a Democrat with blue hair beat your average white guy, you know, in a suit 
And I remember when uh, when that representative won the seat, the next uh, the next session, I was on the floor of the House with some journalists who said, oh, who is that? And I said, well, that's Michelle Beckley. She beat Ron Simmons. And they were like, wait, she beat Ron Simmons? I thought that was a pretty conservative area. And I said, well, it was an interesting year, right? Now, here's another reason that I think that um, that the playing field's a little more equal on this public safety issue. The Democrats still have to answer the question about defunding the police, right? I, I mean, I was making the point earlier that that maybe they're making progress on that, but they still have to answer the question, right? So is Beto in favor of cutting police budgets? Is he in favor of making sure cops are adequately funded or not? Is he for defunding police? Of course I don't, and and no one does. Um, but let's look at my record. I think that's the best thing to look at. And then we'll look at the governors. Um, on the El Paso City Council, I raised police salaries 12% in the six years that I served here. there. In Congress, uh, I funded $11 billion to local and state law enforcement across this country, including in Texas. I want to fund law enforcement, fund training so that everyone is treated equally under the law. And I want there to be accountability for when those officers abuse the public trust. But let's look at what Greg Abbott's done. When police and law enforcement begged him not to sign permitless carry, because it allows anyone to carry a gun in public without a background check, he turned his back on them, did it anyhow. <clears throat> Homicides have gone up 50%, and we now have gun violence as a leading cause of death for children and teenagers in this state. Now, that's what I'm talking about. That is more like what John Fetterman's doing in Pennsylvania, which is saying, hey, you want to accuse us of being soft on crime? Look at all the stuff you're doing. Don't just sit there and be on defense about it. Turn it around, Jeremy, and say, hey, there's a reason at the state level that crime is worse than when you came into office, and here are the reasons. And by the way, uh, whenever uh, constitutional carry, which is the permitless uh, firearm bill, uh, whenever campus carry, whenever any of these loosening of gun restrictions have been in front of the legislature, when law enforcement came to the Capitol to say, please don't do this. You're making our jobs harder. And Republican leadership would put their fingers in their ears and la, 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 we don't hear you. And then these are the same people who say they back the blue. That's a Democrat going on offense about it. Yeah. And, and that is clearly the best I've heard Beto work address that question. You know, going back to his own record, you know, reminding, you know, see, I've always thought like it'd be good, you know, you know, to remind people of his time at the El Paso City Council. And like, basically, he's one of us. He lived in our cities. Like, you know, like he has a long record, you know, where he could point to all those budgets, you know, where they, you know, helped you know, with police and fire and pay raises and all that kind of stuff. Like he has all that in his like quiver. And yet he's let like the, the, uh, the Abbott people and, and in the past, the Cruz people uh, use his history at the council against him. And he never had anything positive to say about mm -hmm. it. But this right. to me was a great message, particularly if there were a lot of independents listening, you know, it's like independents needed to hear what he said. How does he get that out to all the independents who are watching football games or on dates mm -hmm. and watching a movie somewhere, right? <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. those people weren't at this debate. So somehow he's got to get that message to them. Well, and, you know, it's an old axiom in, um, in political consulting. It was like opposition research can also include positive things about your opponent. Right. So you go and you look for all the bad things and then you go, but if we bring this up, what would their defense be? Right. If we bring this up, what, what, would, what would their counter be? Right. And then you have to think that through how the argument would go in public. So one other issue here uh, that we will cover is property taxes. 
Now, we talked a lot about this in the last couple of weeks, of property taxes, and I agree with the governor on this point, that property taxes should be central to the election. You had a great story about it. People can still check it out at uh, HoustonChronicle.com, breaking down all the arguments about this, what Beto and Abbott are saying. And your story, Jeremy, did not require them to make the case in 30 seconds. So <laughs> Abbott, he said that, look, if people are thinking about their property taxes, they're worried about their property taxes, and they want property tax relief, then they should vote for him. Uh, and know this. There's only one person on this stage tonight who's ever raised property taxes, uh, and that is Beto. Beto raised property taxes three times when he was on the city council in El Paso. I will never raise property taxes. And one thing he knows also, and that is the state of Texas does not levy a property tax. That's only done at the local level. And so what the state of Texas has done, and we will continue to do, is to drive down the ability of the, the local governments from, me, from being able to raise taxes. This has been the argument from Republican leadership going back to, well, Dan Patrick, the little governor, has talked about it since forever, time in memoriam. He was talking about it before he was in office when he and I were radio competitors in, in Houston. And he would take busloads of people. Patrick would take busloads of people to the Capitol to protest their property taxes. And it's also complicated. The thing about the property tax issue, and your, your story was great, Jeremy, but I think people could still read it and be confused, right? Because it's complicated, right? <laughs> um, the fact is that because it's complicated, people can almost say anything they want about it. And it will sort of make sense. Even in what you just heard from Abbott, what he said is, I'll never raise your property taxes. Then in the next sentence, he says, by the way, I couldn't even do that if I wanted to because I'm the governor and we don't levy property taxes, right? So he's getting away with some sleight of hand there, right, within that, within that answer. Uh, but what he's saying is that Republican leadership in Austin has done things to rein in local governments and keep them from raising your taxes more than they otherwise would have gone up. And I still wonder... And maybe this election will you know, prove me wrong again. I still wonder uh, about whether there has to be some point at which Texans and not just Democrats, people who are just homeowners, anybody who's open to voting for a Republican or Democrat, your traditional swing voter, which I think we see more of those in the suburbs now, does there come a point where those folks say, look, all of what, they, all of what I perceive as a gimmick coming out of Austin isn't doing anything for me? then my tax bill keeps going up. So while they can say they're fighting Lena Hidalgo, they're fighting the Bear County judge, Nelson Wolf, they're fighting all these other people. You have Steve Adler in Austin and uh, you know who, uh, Glenn Whitley, who's a Republican in uh, Tarrant County. Well, we're fighting all those local officials to try to rein in your property taxes. Does there come a point where the average taxpayer says, that doesn't matter to me whether you're having a fight with them. Can't you just do something to make sure my taxes are lower? And as you reported, uh, Beto O'Rourke thinks he has some ideas for how to do that. And, and his ideas, as I was watching the debate, his ideas have to do more with lowering the property taxes in perpetuity if he did certain things. And what Abbott has talked about is a one-time buy-down of property taxes based off of the nearly $30 billion budget surplus we'll have. Uh, that's what's projected for next year. Yeah. Well, when I talked to Greg Abbott about this in Midland uh, for that story you were talking about, I told him specifically, look, you know, you, you keep saying that you've reduced property taxes or the property tax burden, but I have a buddy in San Antonio, Texas, who will open his tax bill next month. Uh, and it's going to show he's, he's paying 37% more since you got elected as governor. 
that is a lot. Like that's $2,000 that that guy's getting hit with. And it's not just him. I checked in other cities in the state, you know, around, you know, I have buddies all over the state, of course, looking at Amarillo and Denton and Collin County. Now it's you're like, bragging. Yeah, He's got friends everywhere. Yeah. Everybody's taxes have gone up since he was elected governor. And you can say right. they could have been worse. Right. You know, but it's like that's doesn't really resonate with people when they get that bill. This is going to be interesting to see how all these property tax reforms, when people get their bill going, oh, good, I'm only paying 2000 more since you got elected. It's like it's right. a difficult line to walk. And it's, you know, like you said, it's a very complicated you know, issue to kind of delve into. But mm-hmm. you know, if you do read my story, the, the beauty of that story, if I do may, may say so it's myself. It's a blockbuster story. Don't get me wrong. It's no, here a great story. Here we go. Yeah. For, for the first 15 paragraph, there's no numbers in it. So you but don't have to have an accounting degree to figure out the battle lines of yeah, this right. thing and what's happening here. It's like, and that's how you kind of get to it, right? <laughs> but you know, but anyway, I so, so I think this is complicated. Mm-hmm. You can't tell people, and I've said this a million times, but you can't tell people that your property taxes have gone down and they get their bill and it's gone up. You know, that right. is not a winning strategy. They're going to get their bills this next month. You know, it's mm-hmm. like people are going to see it. So if you better be sure that people are seeing real tax relief on their bill when they get that, because if they do and they see that, oh my God, I'm up another couple hundred bucks. Really? Mm-hmm. What, one of the things that I love to watch uh, after presidential debates and just national debates, um, sometimes it's a primary debate or sometimes it's the the, the debate during the general election. I love when Frank – is it Frank Luntz that does it for yep. Fox? He does the focus group afterward. And I want to see people's reactions in real time. And you know that when you go cover an event, uh, let's say you go to a, a rally for somebody or you go to a town hall or whatever it is, uh, a lot of times as a reporter, as a journalist, what you do is you, you, you don't just listen to what these candidates are saying, which you've probably heard them say a million times, and I'm being generous. <laughs> um, you turn around and look at the crowd. So what is the crowd reaction here? What are, are they on their feet? Are they are they wildly applauding? Are they kind of falling asleep? You know what what's the reaction from the crowd, and what thoughts come out of people's mouths? Because look, everybody heard that different. I heard it one way. As a seasoned political journalist in the state, I heard it one way, right? And same for you, Jeremy. And when you call it the floridization of politics in Texas, I thought you meant what they put in the water. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> that would be fluoride, <laughs> fluoriding <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so on News Nation, they did a version of Frank Luntz's focus group. And then News Nation, um, which is kind of an interesting newer um, uh, network. I think they're doing a lot of streaming stuff. It's kind of cool. They went in and covered our debate for Texas. And they had a focus group. And I think these folks were in uh, in Dallas. This voter said she didn't like Abbott's performance at all. And I thought this was interesting. This woman said that she didn't really have any impression of O'Rourke before this. I think she wasn't very impressed with him, really, uh, you know, leading into the debate. She said she didn't really pay that much attention to him uh, before she actually sat and watched this hour of these two guys going at it. Well, I really haven't paid much attention to Mr. O'Rourke, but tonight he remained calm. He followed the debate rules and all Abbott did as far as I'm concerned, was dodge every question that he was asked because in his responses, he wouldn't answer the question. He answered something totally different. And he's been in office for eight years now, and we need a change. 
Yeah. And Jeremy, that, that this goes to the point that I was making at the beginning of the show. And I'm going to make a note here. Maya, I think I got some of the sound bites out of order and you just took it. You took it in stride. Leave all this in. Don't edit anything. Let's do Beto after this. I'll get to him in a second. Um, but the fact is with this woman who heard the whole debate, she's very impressed with O'Rourke. And this is the point I was making at the beginning. If you watched the hour, you probably were impressed with O'Rourke. Even some Republicans would say that. I saw some I saw some folks online saying, actually, he did okay. They still didn't like him. But for the vast majority of people, Jeremy, they didn't even watch the debate last night. To your point, they were at a, they were at a football game or they were at a movie. And they're only going to see maybe some clips today on the morning news. They probably saw that, uh, you know, for Saturday morning news. They'll maybe see some stuff on Sunday with all of the TV stations around the country. The major uh, stations do some kind of a political show on Sunday morning. So some of this will be in that. So they get to see some of that. I can't imagine it's a ton of people, Jeremy, who are going to stream the entire debate after it aired live, right? I'd love to know the number. I probably can't really figure that out because people would look on different platforms. They might have uh, DVR'd it or they might watch it on YouTube. I'm at least going to go watch, uh, look and see uh, what the YouTube number looks like for, for, for the entire debate and see, and see you know, how many people really watch it that way. Who knows? But yeah, I think I stick with what I said. It, good, great night if you're Beto and people actually watched it. It's an okay night for him if nobody did, which is reality. Yeah, I, I, and, and and that woman hit on exactly one of the things I was kind of getting out of the feel of the debate. It, you know, having watched uh, all of Greg Abbott's previous debates recently, uh, I went through them all, and like you know, he had a penchant for being like Joe Cool. Like no matter what the question was, he was calm, relaxed, and he just came off as like just such a like. A reasonable, easygoing, you know, always had the answer to everything. You know, like mm -hmm. you could see the frustration for Wendy Davis and for Lupe Valdez every time, you know, they would try to get to him. It's like nothing hit him, right? This mm -hmm. one was interesting. You know, it's like yeah. I hope it's not just my read, but he seemed no, a little you're bit, right. He seemed a mm -hmm. little bit more amped up. And he yes. felt like he was rushing through some of his answers because he was trying yes. to hit like the last question, then try to shift over to the next question, but mm -hmm. was talking far faster but, than we're used to seeing Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott has yes. a tone and a rhythm mm -hmm. that, you know, and, and I, I think that serves him really well, particularly with independent mm -hmm. type voters that I know who have voted for him in the past. They kind of like that kind of feel he gives off. But this rush quick, pick, 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 pick thing is a little bit different for him. And mm -hmm. I think coupled with the fact that with Beto, you know, stylistically, he kind of almost did the opposite, you know, against you know, Ted Cruz, if you watch those, you can almost see him thinking about what he should say next. You know, it's mm -hmm. like he almost kind of got in his that head. And he was, but last night, it seemed like he was, he was much more disciplined in trying to get his consistent message out throughout mm -hmm. that debate. And I kind of put in, a, put this into my, uh, my analysis that it's going to be in the paper tomorrow. But like, mm -hmm. if you go through it, it's like throughout the debate, you know, the one consistency that Beto kept doing was like, this guy's been in office for eight years and this is where mm -hmm. we're at. He did it on the border. Yeah. He did it on crime. He did it on taxes. He did it throughout the debate. So again, it, you know, again, a lot of independents weren't watching this thing, but, you know, I think O'Rourke did what he's supposed to do. And it's like, it's easily to me, his best debate performance of all the stuff I watched in 2018 mm -hmm. from him and from the presidential. And I think, you know, even just from a, uh, you know, again, I don't think you have to be partisan to realize like that was his best performance yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, but does it move the needle ultimately since not many people see these things? 
Probably not. Right. I'm, so I'm going to make a point that might be counterintuitive because this is what I do. Yes, probably his best debate performance, but that doesn't mean it's the performance that he needed to turn in. Right. So what I mean by that is he was solid. He was, you know, much more disciplined than we've probably seen him in the past. Like you said, there was no like thinking about what he needed to say or anything. He was just, you know, just spring loaded with all of his answers. My point would be, and I made this maybe on the last week's show. I know I made this uh, point on television in San Antonio the other day. He really needed to swing for the fences and have some moments that would go viral that, you know, that 10 million people are going to see him just take it to Abbott. And part of it was the format. He, he he tried to you know land some zingers on on Abbott, and it would be where the the news anchors are talking over him because he's trying to respond to what the governor just said. Right when the bell is dinging and Sally Hernandez is talking from KXAN and all of that, it just it, it didn't land. There was nothing that I thought, oh wow, this is the moment. Yeah. This is the like you know, if you're a Democrat, you'd be praying for the moment in whatever baseball movie. Think of like um, think of uh, like Moneyball. You know that movie. Yeah. Think of Moneyball when the guy who's sort of the awkward person they put at first base because they wanted him a certain point in the in the batting lineup and they throw him in there and everything goes quiet and he knocks that sucker out of the park. He can't believe it. The, you know, the coach can't believe it. The manager can't believe it. The other teammates can't believe it. The crowd comes alive and the whole thing explodes. Where was that moment last night for Beto? Didn't happen. So that's what I mean about moving the needle. How was that for dramatic? Now, yeah, no, absolutely. After the, yeah, well, and, and, and you I see what you, I mean. Like, yeah, it, it just like, didn't happen. There, there's not. There wasn't that one quote that you could lead the, you know, make my headline in tomorrow's newspaper that said, you know, enough of Abbott, 26 years in office, you know, a change, like just something that just kind of like really kind of hammered. Cause, and I, I think there's a little territory in there. And you heard it from that woman in that focus group. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I talked to a lot of people uh, who I think are, you know, somewhat Republican mm-hmm. who are just like, boy. That third term for Greg Abbott, when you say he's already been in there for eight years and he's going to get another four years, that right. bothers people in a way. And I think that's where like, you know, O'Rourke could have had a, that breakout moment, you know, where it's like enough is enough. We're tired of this mm-hmm. guy, you know, just some sort of like, you know, you know, for 20, since 1996, we've been hearing him, you know, run for office, you know, shouldn't we change things up, you know? So All I don't right. know. Let me uh, let me go to this uh, post debate interview from Beto because I thought it was really interesting that, uh, and I, I shouldn't be surprised, but interesting that Beto was the only one to stick around and talk to reporters afterward, <laughs> and <laughs> Abbott took off. Right? And did you see when they shook hands when when Beto and and Greg Abbott shook hands? I thought it was an especially friendly handshake from Abbott. Did you notice that he, he kind of he, he went right to him and big handshake? It looked like he was smiling and at one of those handshakes where you. I like doing this where you, where you shake the person's hand and you also put your, put your hand on the other guy's shoulder, like kind of, you know, really friendly and kind of over the top. And then Abbott went away and then Beto went and shook all of the journalists' hands and told them uh, that they did a great job, which to me uh, was reminiscent of the way that Lieutenant Governor Patrick used to do it when he was uh, participating in debates. He, he used to, this might surprise you, Jeremy, Patrick would always give great credit to the journalists which now he just attacks us all the time and tells us we're terrible. Um, but when he was originally running, he would, he would say, you know, at, at the end when he's doing his uh, closing statement, Patrick would say, great job, moderators. 
That'd be the thing that, you know, he would let them know. And then afterward, he would talk to reporters and be really friendly. Hey, Scott, what's up? Tell me, you know, what question you got? Stuff like that. So uh, Leland Vittert there at News Nation asked the classic question um, that anyone would ask if it was their first time covering a debate in Texas, which is, is, is it surprising to you that this is on a Friday night <laughs> during football and there's uh, no crowd here? Does it bother you uh, that it was on a Friday night when there were a lot of people watching football? I had people tweeting at me going, oh, wow, it's Friday night. I, I, I figured out how to tape this because I'm watching the game. Everyone should know that the, the Abbott campaign set the conditions for this debate. Nobody could come into the hall. It had to be on a Friday night in Texas during football season. Um, you think they were scared? I know he's scared. Uh, otherwise, he would have let his constituents in. There are families from Uvalde who drove five hours to be here, won't let them in to listen to him answer these questions. The uh, Abbott campaign's demand that no one be in the room is a classic move by Dave Carney, uh, who has been the political consultant for Texas governors um, for quite some time. He was the uh, political consultant for Rick Perry when he was governor and now for Abbott. So I mean, it's basically he's the political consultant for a generation's worth of governors, right? Because remember, Perry was governor for 14 years. Yeah. The long, you know, I mean, um, for my daughter, I thought he was going to be the governor her whole life at some point. And he probably, for Perry, he probably would just still be governor if he wanted to be, the way the state is set up, right? I mean, the, who would have challenged him in a primary and won? Probably not, not going to happen. He was also a yeah, prolific amazing, fundraiser like Abbott. Yeah. Isn't it amazing that we've had, you know, two governors in 22 years. Right. It's like, it's so, really like unbelievable. Like This is not like most other states. <laughs> right. In 2006, um, Carney was running the campaign for Perry and Perry in the general election faced three challengers, uh, Chris Bell, Kinky Friedman, and Carol Keaton, Rylander Strayhorn. And I remember that Kinky Friedman would, you know, he was, he was fun. When he was running for governor, I always enjoyed interacting with him. Of course, at some point, the jokes all sounded the same. Um, but uh, he would call because so Carol Keaton Rylander Strayhorn, which somebody said, somebody the other day said, are you making up that name? No, Carol Keaton Rylander Strayhorn, who, <laughs> who had also been a, a, an elected Republican. She ran as an independent and so did uh, Friedman. Um, and she wanted to be called and Kinky Friedman would joke that her name really was Carol Keaton Rylander Strayhorn Cougar Mellencamp. <laughs> and so on and on and on. And I remember one aside on this. I remember that uh, she – there was a, a dispute about ballot names, uh, Jeremy, about – she wanted her name on the ballot to include uh, the phrase one tough grandma because that was her phrase. That was her slogan. And Kinky Friedman, of course, whose name is Richard, Kinky Friedman – had argued that his name could be on the ballot as Kinky Friedman because that's his nickname. And this came down to a um, this came down to a decision by the Secretary of State's office because what's allowed under Texas law is the name that's on the ballot can be your nickname, like Beto, right? What's yep. not allowed on the ballot is a slogan, like one tough grandma, right? But nobody would just call her that as a nickname, right? So, but that's a that's a value that's a you know that that's subjective. But anyway, that's the way that went. In that debate that Carney was uh, was the consultant for Rick Perry, it was the same thing. There was no studio audience, and it was for the same reason as what we saw last night. It was Carney didn't want for Kinky Friedman, who also sort of fed off the crowd. You know, he would do his one-liners, and people would laugh, and that was you know that was great for him in the moment as a showbiz thing. Um, same thing last night with Beto in the Valley. 
Beto's the one who feeds off the crowd energy. And he might have been able to turn in the kind of performance I was talking about with more of a real zinger if he had the crowd, you know, going with him. Um, but what Abbott's team, of course, wanted was to, to not have that at all. And when you're the incumbent and when you're the one who can dictate that, hey, not only are we only having one debate, but I'm going to dictate all the rest of the terms because guess what? I just won't even debate you if we don't do all these things when have no crowd, do it at a certain time and all of that. It really is one of those um, one of those uh, advantages of incumbency because otherwise, you know, Beto would not even have had a shot at him. Yeah, absolutely. There's like no negotiations on this stuff when you have an incumbent who's been in for two terms and mm -hmm. they have like and they feel like they're the favorite. They they dictate all these terms. So like, you mm -hmm. know, the award campaign clearly wanted an audience. They clearly wanted more debates. They clearly wanted, you know, different moderators in different places and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, so, but mm -hmm. they're not getting all that. You know, they're going to get exactly what, you know, Abbott's going to do the one debate. That's it. Period. Move on. You know, it's like that is pretty much the deal they were given. And if they didn't want it, no debate at all. And so, which again, you know, and, and I, I do kind of tend to think, you know, like debates are overplayed all the time because like, mm -hmm. of course, every, mm -hmm. every single human being in the media watches it, but no people yeah. in the real world do. And so, so guess what right. happens? It's like, there's this inundation of analysis, including from people like myself, for people yeah. who just didn't see the thing. So like the mm -hmm. thing is to try to, you know, for me, I've been trying to write these stories for the people who just had better things to do. Like, right. this is what you're going to miss or this is what you missed. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. here it is. Get done with it. Don't go into all this incredible detail on all this stuff that people just look, you know, if I cared, I would have watched it, you know, on a Friday right. night instead of mm -hmm. going to the movie. <laughs> right. Uh, for most people, it's probably good enough to have a cup of coffee on Sunday morning and read your story. HoustonChronicle.com. They can check that out. Um, I have noticed one difference about the polling on all this, Jeremy, uh, which is that Republicans are coming home in Texas the way they always do. Right. We have seen such infighting amongst the Republican Party in this state. It's most of my career is, is covering that. It's sort of the civil war in the Republican Party. We've even seen in the lieutenant governor's race where some Republicans have been endorsing the Democrat. That's sort of a new thing. But I was thinking about the fact that in 2004 in uh, Colorado, the Republican Party lost control of the legislature there uh, to the Democrats. So the Republicans had been in charge there, I think, for 50 years or something. And in 2004, it was a pretty good night for Republicans nationally, right? I mean, that was uh, President Bush was winning re-election against John Kerry. Uh, Democrats uh, were losing most places around the country. It was a very good re-elect for President Bush and his party. The exception was in Colorado. And one of the, and there were a lot of reasons. There's a great book about it I've mentioned before. It's called uh, The Blueprint. Um, one of the reasons that it went bad for Republicans in Colorado in that year was that Republicans continued their infighting all the way to the general election. And in fact, you had uh, in state legislative races, you had uh, some of these third party right wing groups. Uh, I would compare to Empower Texans here, Texas Scorecard in Texas. Um, they were still calling leading up to the general election. They were still calling Republicans insufficiently conservative, you know, and sending out advertising that said so, you know, in some of these competitive districts. And this was really a head scratcher for a lot of the incumbent Republicans, but uh, Democrats were able to win in places like uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, which is not Boulder, right? It's, it's not some liberal place. Um, well, in Texas, the infighting, there's some of it for sure, but Republicans are coming home. So I'm looking at some of the polling and you see that in some of the public polls, it looks like Governor Abbott is moving, his support is moving above 50% for the first time in what I've seen for polling this year. And to me, that's a couple of things that are happening. Like one, and I talked with Jim Henson the other day, 
Uh, we were speaking at the Texas Retailers Association uh, up in Round Rock. And he said, look, a couple of things that, that happened is one, the pollsters start screening for likely voters when they had not been doing that. Two, I added this, Republicans are coming home, right? And you can see that manifested in an advertisement from this group, the DTL pack. It's the Defend Texas Liberty pack. And if, if you thought that Abbott was throwing everything but the kitchen sink or including the kitchen sink at Beto, listen to what these guys are saying about Beto O'Rourke. Meet Beto O'Rourke's cronies, Mike Collier, liberal for lieutenant governor, Rochelle Garza, liberal for attorney general. Whatever Beto wants, they think Texas needs more of it. Completely dismantling those police forces. Transgender kids. Would you take the wall down now? Yes. Do you think Texas needs more children and drag shows, tent cities and overdoses, murders, riots and looting, endless illegal immigration? On every issue, they stand with the Beto platform. Reject radical Democrats. Keep Texas, Texas. Vote Republican. Straight down the ticket. Now. That's the first example I've heard of any advertising in Texas that says, and, and, and with any money behind it, that says people should vote straight down the ticket Republican. I haven't really even seen that from the Republican Party of Texas, uh, although of course they've said some things like that. But this is, you know, this is a this is an advertisement that is trying to stress to people that look, we don't have one punch straight ticket voting anymore, so you need to vote for all Republicans down the ballot. If you thought that the things that were coming out of the announcer's mouth were sort of over the top, Jeremy, on the screen as you watch the ad. It said the Democratic platform includes things like, and Maya saw it, she's laughing already. She, the, the things that are on the screen say pornography in schools. This is one of the things Democrats want in, in Texas. Um, so, I mean, throwing everything at them. Now, while they're doing that, remember that it's Lieutenant Governor Patrick, who was, I think, the most prominent of Republican office holders to be making the case that the ugliness of the primaries needs to be set aside and Republicans really need to unite. Do you remember his speech at the Republican Party of Texas convention in Houston? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, he, and he was, do I have this right? He was pretty much the only one to have a strong message about that. I didn't hear Ken Paxton say that. And of course, Governor Abbott did not speak at the convention. So he spoke at that separate event that you attended. Uh, but of, of the people who were actually on the stage and sort of rallying the Republican faithful, it was Patrick who was saying, Look, I, I know that some of you don't like the fact that uh, Don Huffines and Alan West and uh, Chad Prather, I know that some of you don't like that they lost. I'm paraphrasing Patrick. But look, it's time to come together as Republicans and beat Democrats. Right? That was a big message from, from Patrick, which I thought was significant. Um, Patrick is still rolling around the state in his double-decker bus that looks like a Las Vegas limo on the inside. I, I had somebody pull up the specs on that bus. And it, it's kind of like a rolling strip club, you know, if you wanted to rent one out. I mean, there's poles in there. There's, you know, there's private rooms upstairs. And I'm not saying he's using it for that. I'm saying it could be used for that. I know that he's a strong conservative. He would not do that. Um, but I, heard, I, saw where, <laughs> I saw where Patrick has been granting a few more interviews to reporters as he rolls across Texas on his tour. And I thought some of his answers to Jack Fink – um, where is he? KTVT and DFW. Uh, Jack Fink was asking him about a couple of things, including guns and abortion, some of these uh, you know hot button topics. And I thought his answers were a little different from what he would say previously, Jeremy. And tell me if I'm I'm going to play these for you. Tell me if you think we're if you think I'm off or what. Um, Patrick taking a little bit stance on guns and crime. And Jack Fink asked him. He said, "Hey, it, is it that you have a new plan for what to do?" when it comes to these things? Guns are not the problem, it's the people who have the guns. We need to take them out of the criminal's hands. So we're going to put a 10-year mandatory sentence if you use a gun in a crime 
on top of whatever sentence you're receiving for whatever crime if you're found guilty of. So we've got to make a strong deterrent. It's not just in all of Texas, but particularly in Dallas and Houston and San Antonio and Austin where crime is up, murder rates up. Uh, we've got to get the guns out of the hands of the criminals. Law-abiding citizens need the guns to protect themselves, especially these days, so that's the plan. And for the judges and the DAs who will not follow the law and prosecute crimes under Texas law, we've got to work uh, to find a path to be sure that they can't stay in office. The last part of that, Jeremy, is what hit my ear a little bit different. I've heard some of the other stuff before, like we need to have more, uh, you know, uh, more stringent sentencing for people who commit a gun crime. The last part of that was for DAs and judges who are not tough enough on crime, we need to get them out of office. Now, it, when I heard it, and there's a version of that in the television ad that Patrick is running as well, the way he just said it in that interview is a little bit different. Um, in the ad, he says they can't stay in office. And in that interview, he says, we got to kind of get them out of office. Um, to me, that doesn't sound like he means through normal elections, because we're talking about people who are elected, state district court judges and district attorneys at the local level. They're elected by people in wherever, in Harris County, Bear County, Dallas County, or whatever. What he is probably talking about, and there's been some agitation about this among different right-wing groups, what he's talking about is adopting a state constitutional amendment to remove prosecutors and judges through recall elections. That's probably what he's getting at there. So he wants to go a little bit further with undoing what people at the local level decide. I can tell you that the prosecutors are probably not going to be happy about this. Battling the prosecutors at the Capitol is always a heavy lift. And if he really wants to be successful with that, he would have to, I believe that would be, a, as I said, a state constitutional amendment, which would mean he'd need Democrats to vote for it because that requires two thirds of the legislature to approve it. And then people in Texas would have to approve it. It's going on. It's taking the long country road to get to where he wants to go, which is to say, hey, people like Kim Ogg in Houston as a Democratic district attorney or people like John Crusoe in Dallas County that they need to be thrown out of office because we believe that they're not tough enough on crime. A real shift from years past when the DAs of Texas would have been the ones who would have been the ones to be making that case the most, you know, in, in the most uh, uh, bold statements as possible. Well, to me, all of it sounds like Dan Patrick is taking very careful notes while watching Fox News. Mm -hmm. You know, what he is doing is like exactly what Ron DeSantis is doing right now in Florida and getting good marks for. Like, you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida has been going after trying to knock the DA in Hillsborough County, which is in Tampa, uh, the Tampa area. Uh, he's trying to knock that DA out of office, you know, saying that they have not done what they're supposed to be doing and they're not enforcing the law. You can see the Republicans in Texas going, hey, look, you know, DeSantis is kind of on to something. Maybe mm -hmm. we can kind of go after some of these DAs. But, yeah, you're right. This is a very different thing. This, again, this whole – you know, remember when like law enforcement, you know, always gets our back. You know, we're, we're always going to defend them all the way to the end. But now you have this Republican Party where it's like it's anti-FBI. It's now turning on DAs. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, they're for, you know, the police, except for when the police say we don't want constitutional carry. It, it gets it gets a lot, you know, more, uh, I don't know, nuanced in the whole discussion mm -hmm. now on like how, you know, what, what does it mean to be pro-law enforcement? And, and I think I think you're right. Patrick has just kind of opened a whole new line here that I just didn't expect to see Republicans saying, you know, let's go after DAs who have a history of, 
like not doing what we want, I guess. Right. We'll go after law enforcement. It's very selective support of law enforcement. Yeah. Um, another answer that he gave to Jack Fink there in DFW I thought was interesting. You may have seen one Republican state senator said that he would support uh, adding exceptions for rape and incest to the abortion ban in Texas. That was uh, Senator Robert Nichols from Jacksonville, Texas, out in East, uh, East Texas. Not a liberal, exactly. Um, and listen to Dan answer this one. And this is this is Patrick, to your point, going a little slower on this. This is him um, very, you know, giving a very nuanced answer about it. Uh, and look, of course, he says he's pro-life and everything, right? He, he says all that. You expect that. But listen to the rest of this. This is, this is a little bit different way of Patrick talking about abortion regulations in this state. Well, that issue, there's going to be a lot of discussion this session. This will be the first session since the Dobbs decision. Uh, the trigger bill that that we have now that goes back to the old law was a law passed by Democrats a long time ago. They didn't have the exceptions in there, uh, nor did they try to amend the heartbeat bill with any exceptions. So we'll see where the Republicans and Democrats are, we'll listen to the people, and we'll move forward. He's saying that the Republican majority in Austin, uh, this is just my read of it, that the, that the Republican majority passed an abortion ban with no exceptions for rape and incest because Democrats didn't fight them hard enough, right? Which, look, in in legislating, one of the things that the minority party can do is offer up amendments to try to make a, what they consider to be a bad bill to make it not as bad. And I would say that is um, a form of uh, adult legislating, right? Like, hey, we're not going to get everything that we want, but we're at least going to have a negotiation with the majority party about how to make this a little bit a little bit better. Even, even if they vote against the final bill on final passage during the amendment process, they could go in and say, hey, you know, what about this? What about that? And another reason you would do it is to try to get the majority party on the record about where they really are on specific issues within it to say, okay, hey, we're going to offer an amendment that says for the rape victim, there's an exception. There's an exemption. Um, there's an exception for incest. Um, there are certain exceptions for when there are fetal abnormalities, right? The doctors have to make very tough decisions. Uh, he's, I mean, on part of it, he's correct that Democrats didn't really challenge the Republicans in that way uh, on this, but He's talking, he's talking about it um, as if this is some completely new reality, as if Republicans didn't expect and hope that a decision like Dobbs would come down from the Supreme Court. Right? But it's, it's not like Republicans and conservatives have not been pushing for that for decades. And so now it finally happens and Patrick says, well, this will be the first legislative session after that actually happened and maybe we'll go back and recalibrate what we're doing. Yeah, it was so interesting to hear him blame Democrats of the old days for having such a strong abortion law. It's like, wait, wait, why isn't he taking credit for that? Like, like the the old Dan Patrick says, we are so pro life that we're going to protect every baby no matter what. You know, it's like that's kind of how they were kind of pitching the whole heartbeat bill. You know, it was like when I asked about exceptions and stuff like that, they go, every baby deserves our help. You know, it's just like, and now it's like, well, the Democrats did this. It's like what? <laughs> it's like the Democrats from like nineteen twenty. Three, you know, did this? Is this what we're getting into now? So apparently, that's where we are. Right. Did you see this story about the attorney general literally running away from a guy who tried to bring him a subpoena in an abortion oh, case? Yes. Since we're talking about, how could abortion you miss here. that? Right. <laughs> how could you miss it? Monday night, this uh, started to be reported out, and uh, what it is is there's this uh, case that has to do with whether these various abortion funds can help women if they're leaving the state to get an abortion. Um, and of course, there's all this uh, this jockeying for position now around what's happening with the abortion laws in Texas, where you know some Republicans want to go even further uh, than we already have, where you would say, okay, a woman can't leave the state to go to a state where it's legal and get it there, 
and there are a few other things that are at play with all this. Um, well, there was um, what they call a process server. This is the this is the person who comes and brings court documents to somebody. You get you know you've been served that kind of you've been served in a lawsuit that kind of thing. This guy shows up at Paxton's house up in uh, McKinney in North Texas, up in Collin County, and uh, he shows up uh, to give Paxton these documents. By the way, we reported at quorumreport.com uh, that Paxton and his office knew that this was going to happen. Maybe they didn't know exactly what time, but they, they knew it was going to happen. And there had been actually a really friendly exchange between uh, Paxton's folks and the the other attorneys in this case. It didn't look like it should be some big dramatic situation. But when this guy showed up to give the documents to Paxton to try to get him to uh, show up and testify in this case, he ran. He ran off. Like literally and, ran. And he, I, I, I'm, well, I'm hesitant to use the word literally because people usually misuse it. Most time when people say literally, they mean actually. In this case, he literally ran away from the guy. <laughs> and uh, of course, you know, we were seeing this uh, on Monday evening. And by the next day, it was one of the top stories on CNN. Well, this is quite the story. Yesterday morning, uh, this person trying to serve a subpoena for an abortion rights group here in Texas showed up at Ken Paxton's house in a Dallas suburb to serve the papers uh, against the attorney general at his home. Uh, according to an affidavit filed in, in court, uh, this person says that uh, Angela Paxton, who is a state senator, that is the AG's wife, answered the door and she said that the attorney general was too busy to answer. So the man waited outside the home uh, to try to serve the papers uh, a little bit later. Uh, then a little while later, he sees Ken Paxton come out of his garage the man runs up to Ken Paxton, and as soon as, uh, according to this document, Paxton sees the man with the court documents, Paxton runs back, inside, runs back inside the house. Then, a few minutes later, the man says in this court document that he sees Angela Paxton come out of the house, open up several doors to a truck, and then Ken Paxton ran back, back outside into the truck as this man tried to serve uh, the court papers uh, there at their homes. That's Ed Lavendera uh, reporting from Dallas uh, on CNN. Uh, Jeremy, <laughs> of course, you know, the, the images of the Attorney General of Texas running from a guy with court papers aside. It's just, to me, it's um, yet another example of, and maybe I'm wrong, I, again, the people in Texas, voters here have a chance to prove me wrong anytime they would like. It doesn't matter what comes out about these folks, they'll get reelected. Paxton has you know, a, a mistress who's involved in one of his scandals. This has all been reported. He's got, you know, this uh, invite, indictment hanging over his head for seven years. He's got, you know, the accusations that he was helping out the shady developer in Austin who was actually putting his mistress, uh, getting her some work uh, here in Austin. Uh, and in exchange for Paxton doing some things for this developer who wanted, uh, the, the developer wanted uh, Paxton to go after people who were investigating the developers. It was, it's, 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 you, know, you, need, you almost need one of those court boards with people's faces on it to you know, put the yarn in between their faces and explain to the conspiracy of what's going on. All this stuff is, is you know, it's all been reported and it's almost like it doesn't matter. He'll, he'll just win anyway. I mean, I do have people telling me that of all the statewide races, this is the one. Of course, everybody tries to make a case about this is the one you need to watch. I'll get people saying it's the lieutenant governor's race. He's in the most trouble. And here are the reasons. Or here is Paxton as, as AG, and he's in the most trouble. And here are all the reasons. Um, Republicans, and this will be infuriating to some people, but, I, but you know, you got to look at what's there. Republicans have such a structural advantage in Texas that it doesn't matter what else comes out like that. Paxton, in all likelihood, will still win his election. 
Am I crazy? No, I, I, absolutely. I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with the, the concept that if uh, if anybody's going down, the but first one I put on the list is going to be Ken Paxson. Okay, you know, it's like he's the one like who because like, you know you got to remember who's you know Greg Abbott's the lead of this ticket, and so people are coming out to vote in the governor's race. How many Abbott fans you know are willing to vote for Ken Paxson, or will they skip the race? You know, it's like and, and when I think about that, I'm thinking, okay, there's a lot of people who like Abbott who probably don't like Paxson. You know, it's like, so mm-hmm. there's going to be some, you know, drop off there. Some of and that. it works mm-hmm. the other way too. There's a lot of Trump fans who love Ken Paxton who may not love Greg Abbott. And it's like, but can Paxton get those people to the polls without Trump coming to town? I don't know. So a lot, lot to be done there. But what's amazing about this whole story, I, I, I love this story for so many reasons, but here from a very journalistic way, right? If I pitched my editor uh, a story about Ken Paxton being served a subpoena, like nobody cares. Like nobody's going to do that story. You know, no editor will agree to that. But the way Paxton has handled this, not only through the running part, but then his explanation the next day, he has just dragged this like non-story <laughs> into a week-long national drama that <laughs> right. is being played out on CNN, right. is in what? every newspaper, and is a solid reminder to every single person who may not have been paying attention that this is a weird dude <laughs> yeah you know it's like he it's like one week of this i'm like you know right. i don't understand why he let this happen just take the damn papers well, and make it a non-story take you know, the papers I have to do. not only take the papers but um you know it was two or three days into the story and he's still issuing statements about it yes um and what saying, the heck is he and, doing <laughs> and he was he was saying that the guy and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here obviously but he was saying that the guy who approached him with the papers was lucky that it didn't turn into a second amendment type situation he was saying that look if 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 someone approaches you on your property in Texas you don't want them there you can shoot them right i mean that was that was the implication uh, which of course <laughs> yeah. a lot of people thought well, i mean this is taking it in a really crazy direction but of course that made the story last for at least 72 more hours to your point. Yeah, nothing like ins- insert insert the standard ground law into this and like and threaten to shoot a process server sent by the court. You know, okay, wait, what what? You're the attorney general of the state of Texas. What are you talking about right now? Like this is a guy who's clearly hanging out with Donald Trump way too much up in mm-hmm. Bedminster. I'm just saying. It's like I don't think you spend that much time with Trump then come back and start you know, saying these kinds of things and like, right. Well, weird. and I think, you know, to your point about this being the race to watch where you could say, okay, of the, of those statewide Republicans who might be the most vulnerable, I would say the main reason he's the most vulnerable is because it's not Patrick. It's not Abbott. Uh, it's not Glenn Hager. It's not at this moment. It's not even Sid Miller. The one who is the most attached at the hip with Trump is Paxton, right? I mean, he talks like Trump. He's at Trump events. He is suing on his behalf. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, he was inserting himself into the Mar-a-Lago raid on behalf of the state of Texas, which even a lot of Republicans say, oh, I don't know about this. What are we What are we really doing here? So we'll watch all that unfold. I think that that's definitely enough show for a Saturday. I appreciate Maya and you, Jeremy, joining me on a Saturday morning so we could break down this debate. I, look, we had to do this for the listeners. I, I don't mind working six and seven. If there was an eighth day to the week, I would work for our audience. Perfect. I want people to know about that. Dedica- I want people to know about that dedication. Y'all don't have to follow me into that, you know, into that territory, but that's where I'm yeah, at. And, and, so. and like, you know, I would like to add, like, I would not stay up till midnight, you know, writing, you know, about the debate and then turn around so early to hang out with y'all 
unless it was for these readers and these viewers and these right listeners. because because we clearly because we clearly don't like each other. All right, <laughs> if this is your favorite show, <laughs> uh, you should be subscribed already. If this is your favorite show, you need to tell all of your friends about it. We appreciate it. Uh, you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Hit the subscription button; it'll show up automatically each week on your front. And look, if we do a show on a day that you don't normally expect, if it's not Friday and we do it on Saturday, it'll just pop up on the phone if you're subscribed. You never know when a special edition like this one, which felt extra special, will pop up. Subscribe at uh, quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.